Well, church, we're in Mark chapter 10 today. Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 23, and we're going to go through 31. Mark chapter 10. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of God. Well, last week we talked about the rich young ruler. The last two weeks, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. He was rich, he was young, and he was a leader in the synagogue. He had everything going for him. And he queried Jesus and he said, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you, you know what you've got to do. He says, according to your rabbis, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not lie, and you must not defraud, and you must honor your father and your mother. And the rich young ruler said with great joy, I've kept all of these since I was bar mitzvahed, since I became an adult. And it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack. He pointed out the idol of his heart, the barrier between him and the Lord. He said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have riches in heaven. Really showing that his idol was wealth. His could have been many other things, but he pointed to that particular issue, the abuse of wealth, the desire for more and more and more. And the Bible says his face fell. He went away very sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus says, man, it's difficult for somebody who's trusting in their wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult for somebody who's let their wealth become an idol. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And there should have been a great pause there because then he said, you know, with God, all things are possible. So just take stock of your lives. Think about your lives. And instead of being a great pause where people pondered and thought through the issue, there was a guy there named Peter. And Peter had this propensity to not have a filter between what he thought and what he said. And so in this moment where there should have been a pause and a moment of reflection, Peter blurted out this. He said, well, well Lord, we have left everything and followed you. 
there are at least four fishermen there and a tax collector named Matthew. We, we've left everything and we followed you. And then Jesus gives this incredible statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one here has left lands or fathers or mothers or wife or children or houses who will not in this life receive 100-fold over as you live this life. This is a great promise. This is an incredible statement that he makes. So I'm going to give you four principles from this passage. And the first principle is this. Ultimate and sole allegiance belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, he says, he says, he says no one, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters, mothers, fathers, children, for my sake and for the gospel. So Jesus is saying that ultimate allegiance belongs to him, that he is to be the Lord of lords, he is to be worshiped, he alone receives ultimate allegiance. I, I am glad to be an American, I'm glad for the heritage, I'm glad to live in a land of opportunity and freedoms, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for the privilege of being here. And I have no problem putting my hand on my chest and saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag. No problem. I'm called to be a good citizen. I pray for those in authority. In fact, uh, 1 Peter 2 says that, that submit to those who are in authority. And that was under a very draconian government called the Roman occupation. But whenever I think about ultimate allegiance, I always think about Acts chapter 5, where that involves the apostle Peter. And the apostle Peter is told it says, they brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Christ, yet here you are filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered them, we must obey God rather than men. And so, as a believer in Christ, I am glad to be a citizen, but my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. So if I'm asked to do something that goes against what I believe to be a clear biblical command, I must obey God and not man. I love my wife. I love my kids. I really love my grandkids. And if I'm, if I'm asked to, to give allegiance to them when I know it goes against the clear teaching of the Bible, I must, as a believer in Jesus, say, I'm sorry, I love you, but I can't go there. But I must obey God and not my family, not men. Ultimate allegiance belongs to Jesus. But here, here's, here's the glory of it, that, that if the ultimate allegiance goes to Jesus and Jesus receives the priority in my life, then, then as I honor him in every endeavor or try to, he brings flourishing and hope and joy and peace to who, to, to who I am. There's a bracing statement made in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14. It's an incredible statement. Jesus says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you go, that's an incredibly abrasive statement, but it's made by the king of all glory. This is what he's saying, that if I make Christ the Lord of my life as a, in my case, as a father, as a husband, 
as a brother and as a son. If, if he has a priority and if he is the Lord, then he will make me the father and the brother and the son and the husband that he has called me to be. But if I let anything else have this, the priority, it diminishes my power and my joy and my, and my ability to live it out before the Lord. So ultimate allegiance must always go to Christ, who is the good shepherd, the lion, the lamb, the strong tower. So in this passage, that's the, to me, that's the first issue, that Jesus says, you must have allegiance to me. Secondly, he says this. He talks about the blessings and the rewards. And it's just, this is an amazing statement. He says, if anybody comes to me, he, he says, he will have, if he's left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or children or lands for my sake in the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So it's kind of a redundant thing here. A hundredfold now in this time. He says, don't miss it. I'm talking about right now. A hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So, so I, I look at this and I say, don't miss the 100-fold now in this time. When you come to Christ, you become part of a family. You, you have brothers and sisters in the Lord. You, you have people that, 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 that you become part of. And it's a dear, precious thing. I love the local church. I love being with people. I, between the services, there's a man that is not a very emotive guy. I mean, he's really not at, at all. And he came up to me and he said, I've got to tell you. He said, and he had tears in his eyes. He says, I am so glad to be back with people, worshiping with people. In-person worship is what we're about. I said, amen. It's, it's, just, it's just a joy. I love, I, I love being part of the family of God. We've talked about some core values in our vision planning, and one of those is this. We are a family. You know, we believe in the God-given family, the, what we call the traditional family, the biblical family, but we also believe in the family of God, and it's a glorious thing. But don't, don't, miss, don't miss here on the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment and, and the exuberance that, that Jesus is talking about. Let me give you a couple, a couple of verses. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You go. So when I, when I come to worship, when I come to prayer, when I come to my Bible reading, when I come to my fellowship time, I've got to believe that he is and that he rewards, he rewards those who seek him. Amazing statement. In Matthew 16, this is what Jesus says. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you say, well, how, how do I really experience the reality of Christ? You lose it in caring and loving and serving and worship and being diligent about the kingdom of God. That's what you do. And, and in that, there is great reward. There's a statement in the sermon guide that we published. It's, it's a, from a man named C.S. Lewis called 
It's from a book called The Weight of Glory. And this is what Lewis says. I'll just read a couple of sentences. It says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Desire, joy, happiness, hope. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, an appeal to desire. Do this and live. Do this and experience joy. You see, the, the old guys got it. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1653-ish. Uh, the, the first statement in the larger catechism, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Enjoy. Enjoy. Not, not, not obey. Obey is important, absolutely. But enjoy, not do the right thing. Do the right thing is important. Enjoy. Something written 80 years before that called the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to the Lord Jesus, who by his shed blood has satisfied all my sins. Now, that's a Reader's Digest version. Question two goes like this. What must you know and live and, and die in the joy of this comfort? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. The death of my sin, how my sin is forgiven, and how I, I am to express thanksgiving. The joy of this comfort. And I, I, would, just, I would just say to you uh, that, that let us be people of joy. Let us be people of happiness because our sins are forgiven, because heaven awaits, because the Holy Spirit guides us, because we have a place to plant our feet, because God's answered the big questions in life, why I was born, where I'm going when I die. Let us be people of joy as we resolve to follow him. And, and let us go into the marketplaces in our neighborhoods and, the, and in their, uh, our relationships and just talk, talk about Jesus. There's no hymn that says, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I love the word allured, captured, brought me in. And because of that, another hymn, maybe the most famous hymn in Christendom, A Mighty Fortress. Martin Luther says, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth. Still, his kingdom is forever. Being, be people who are resolved. Be joyful. The third thing is that he says, with persecutions. You see, this, this list of houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children, he says, with persecutions. 
Why, why, why does the Lord add that? I believe he adds that because he's telling these men that they live in a world that's not perfect, that they will face persecutions. Many of these men were put to death for their faith. He says, you'll, you'll face persecutions. Uh, you're going to, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's battles and blessings. It's, you know, the, 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 it varies from culture to culture. It varies from age to age. It varies from nation to nation, persecutions. So 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, verse 9, starting in verse 8, it says, Be so reminded and watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we're in a battle, we're in a less than perfect world, we're going to be confronted by our sin, our worldly system, and the devil. This is a proud in line. And he says, resist him, firm in your faith, as you realize that you are part of a brotherhood of believers, many of whom are suffering throughout the world. So, so remembering gives us courage. Remembering history gives us courage. I've told you this once before, but let me tell you again. This example, I, I up until the COVID experience, uh, once a year, I get to go to North Africa and teach at a seminary that we help sponsor. There are 80 or 90 people there from five countries in North Africa. And the last time I was there, I was praying with a group of men from Algeria, Berbers, uh, delightful guys. I mean, just full of life and energy. And I don't, of course, speak their language and uh, but, but when you're praying with somebody and they're praying, pouring their hearts out to Jesus, you can kind of pray with them. And so they're praying and uh, I'm sitting next to a guy who knows English and occasionally he'd interpret, but I was enjoying the prayer time. And all of a sudden uh, there was an interruption and the guy had his, his phone pinged. And he, says, he said, uh, I found out later, he said, brothers, the interpreter told me, we just have a message from person X. Um, his church was burnt last night and all the books in the church were destroyed. And Algeria is a country of 47 million people, North Africa. On the World Index, um, put out by World Vision as far as persecution, they're number 17 in the world. Number one is North Korea, then Iraq and Iran and Syria. But anyway, they're number 17, very little religious freedom. And I looked around the circle, there were about eight or nine of us, and I looked around the circle and a couple of guys looked up and they made eye contact and they did this. They went like that. They started praying again. When they did that, they're basically they were saying, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> that's going to happen. And so, so if, if this had happened here, I'd say, man, call the Beckett Foundation, call the Alliance Defending Freedom, two incredible groups that fight for religious liberty. I love these people. Now, we live in a nation that has the First Amendment. We have rights. But those people have no First Amendment. They have no religious liberty foundation. They live in a country that says, this is it. This is the way you live. Get, get used to it. That emboldens me. That emboldens me. So, no, I have brothers and sisters in North Africa today who are being persecuted, turned out of their homes, 
They're sometimes killed because they speak the name of Jesus as Savior and King and God. So I have a word to say to younger people about this issue. So, so younger people, please hear me. So glad for, for the number of younger people that are going to be in our worship services today. So thankful for people that are encouraging them and building them up. Unless God brings a revival, and he can do that, we have to be people who, especially in this day and age, live very well to the glory of God, think very, very well, speak with dignity and brokenness and love and courage that can only come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I hear Christians speak and they're kind of arrogant and dismissive and I want to say, just shut your mouth. Now speak with brokenness. Speak with love. Speak. It takes courage today, especially in the, among young people, to live for Jesus. The culture has gone way this way from its way, way, way. So history. 1976, I'm a senior in college. There's a man running for president named Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer from Georgia. Nobody gave him a chance. He was elected. But he gave an interview and he talked about the fact that he was born again. Time Magazine came out with a major article saying the year of being born again. Time Magazine. And they were saying that this is, this is something that's very interesting. This is, we that, that would never happen today. Never happen today. And I just think that we need to be people who understand that we have to think well, live well, reason well. We have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we live in a culture that has forgotten these things. So yesterday I was at a funeral. 80 people, a very hard funeral, a very young man died. And the family had asked that as part of the funeral we sing a great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a wonderful hymn, written in the 1850s or so. And then... And uh, it, I loved the hymn, but I was kind of helping with the funeral, and they asked me to lead the hymn, which was really a difficult thing, but I did. And we're sitting there, standing there singing, and I'm 80 people, probably the vast majority, are unchurched. But they just. And we get to the stanza that says, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That is good stuff. That's really good stuff. But I was sitting, standing there singing, and I thought, these people have no idea what we're singing about. Zero. They, they, they don't understand that the living Christ rose from the dead and went to heaven and he's going to come back one day and bring history to a close and those who know his name will go to heaven and those who not will go to eternal judgment. And he's not only coming again, he's coming again on a white horse that says faithful and true. It's glorious. But we got to explain it time after time after time. There is a living God who is triune in the fullness of time. This living God became a man. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial law on the cross. He died for our sins. His name is Jesus. We have to tell it again and again and again and again. 
So we need to live it, speak it, love people in the name of Christ. And I pray we have courage to do that. And then thirdly, it says this, that we will, as we live this way, understand with persecutions comes this statement, and in the age to come, there is eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So, so he, he says, if you're, if you're going to break the spell of the world, the spell of the devil, you've got to understand that Jesus gives ultimate allegiance, that there are great rewards and joy and peace and human flourishing in following him, and that as we follow him, we've got to be bold and kind and gracious and be steely-eyed as we live with an onslaught from people who may want to persecute us. But understand this, the best is yet to be. Eternity is coming. There is a heaven. And be, be glad that the warmest embrace we have now will be multiplied a thousand times in heaven. That the most majestic view that we have now will be multiplied a thousand times in heaven. That, that, the, that the most delicious meal we have now will be multiplied a thousand times in heaven. Heaven is a glory beyond imagination. And that's our hope. And so that's why Paul can say, even though the outward man is breaking down, the inner man is being renewed day by day and glory awaits. So, so we rejoice in the hope of heaven, and we are glad for that. So there's a book titled The Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, and Mark Twain is kind of writing his worldview. He's not a believer. It's a very entertaining book. But in the book, we meet a guy named um, um, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. This is from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Okay, I'm wrong. Anyway, so Huckleberry Finn is this free, I mean, this very gracious casual guy that just loves life. And so he's having a conversation with Miss Watson, who is a Christian spinster who is full of self-righteousness. And this is the dialogue. It says that, according to Huckleberry Finn, Miss Watson went on and told me all about the good place called heaven. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think very much of it. I asked her if she reckoned that Tom Sawyer would ever go to heaven. And she said, not by a considerable sight. He said, I was glad about that because I wanted him to be with me forever together. And so Huckleberry Finn says that Miss Watson says, it's just one long singspiration. And he says, that's not for me. Heaven is a glory beyond our words. Heaven is a place of joy and accomplishment and peace and worship and fellowship. Heaven is a place that is the birthright of the child of God who knows Jesus by faith. That's how you break the spell of the world. Now, three quick comments. Number one is this. As we go out and we have allegiance to Jesus, speak the name of Jesus to those around you. Speak his name. Talk about the forgiveness of sins. This week I met with a, a couple, and they're in the middle of a family issue, and somebody very close to them has uh, announced that he has renounced his faith that he's taught as a child and that he really doesn't want to hear about Jesus anymore. And the husband looked at me and he says, you know, I cannot help but speak about the grace of Jesus when I'm with people. I said, amen. I said, keep loving and caring 
and graciously speak the name of Jesus. He said, I can't, I can't help it. And I, I thought about Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, there was these two fishermen named Peter and John, untrained, unschooled, thick calloused hands. And, and it, it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated, merely common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? And so they brought them back in, and, and they said, we command you to no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or not, you must be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and we have heard. Speak his name. To your children, to your friends. Number two, Jesus says, in this life, in this time, you receive houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. My encouragement is open your homes to people. Open your hearts to people. Ask people to come in. Hospitality is an incredible statement of concern and love for people. You just open your homes. And, and you, you just invite them in. Um, uh, if you want to have me over, I like, I, I'm not a vegetarian. I like chicken and I like fish. So I like anything, okay? But open your homes. Now, I'm going to say a word to the women, and please forgive me, but uh, let me just say this. Um, I kind of act like you're a man to man and you're eavesdropping. Um, to, to the women here, um, when I go into a home, I don't inspect the dust level. I, I don't look for general spotless cleanliness. Just open your, open your home. Read a woman called Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she keeps, she, she loves hospitality. She puts everybody's shame I've ever met in the area of hospitality. And she keeps some chicken and rice and beans in the fridge. So people come over, they have chicken, that's what they get. And it's a very simple meal. People are there because they want to be with each other. So I, don't, don't worry about Southern living or good housekeeping coming in. Just open your homes. And between services, I remember something happened to me when I was a little boy. Well, I was, uh, I think I have time. So I was, I was a little boy, six years old, probably six. My brother's four. And we were just full-on full boys. And in our church, once a year, we would have some meetings where there would be a guest preacher come in. And so my mom bravely volunteered to feed the preacher, preacher Pastor Jackson, and the guest preacher at our house one night. And so, I mean... She cleaned and she cleaned us and she put fear into our lives that we'd never misbehave and never say anything wrong. And she says, now, you, you, you be on your best behavior or you're going to get it, that, that stuff. And so we're, we're there and she goes into the bathroom. She said, use the bathroom. You can't use the bathroom again. Use the, we had one bathroom. And so she put out monogram towels with obviously B on it. And I've never seen those before. And I said, what, what are those? He said, these are, these are for special guests. I went, oh, man, great. And she took the towel that we used, which was 
clean, but it was ratty looking at my brother. And she put it under the sink and said, this is your towel. I said, okay. And so the, the pastor comes and his guests and we're sitting there and having a great time. And so get ready to eat. And Pastor Jackson says, Martha, can we wash our hands? Said, oh, yes, the bathroom is right there. And so we follow them. We watch them wash their hands. He's great people. And, and he reaches out for the monogram towel. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, uh, that's for special guests. And I opened up the bottom. I pulled out and I said, this is for you. My mama died a thousand deaths on the spot. But it was a great, just a great understanding of just being, being, being hospitable. Open your hearts and your homes. Number three, or number, number, yeah, number three, uh, count it all joy as you realize the best is yet to be. You see, every, every, every other system, every other system cannot deliver except the living Christ. Every other system. When people get married and they, they look at each other and so often they, they, they say, they don't say that loud, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking my spouse to meet every need I have. That, that is a burden no one was meant to bear. When I see a parent that looks at a child and they're trying to live through their child vicariously and this child will never do anything wrong and never break their heart, that, that, is, a, that is a burden no child was ever meant to bear. Every system will let you down except the knowledge of Jesus. I believe that. So, so that's why ultimate allegiance is in, very, incredibly important. Because Christ fulfills his word. I read a book two weeks, three weeks ago called Pioneers by David McCullough, who wrote John Adams and Harry Truman, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, and is about the settlement of the Northwest, called the Northwest Territories, which is modern day Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Illinois, at the Revolutionary War. And so this, this, this charlatan goes to France with all these deeds in his hands. And he's, they've heard about the open the Northwest Territory and what's going on after the Revolutionary War. And so he says, if you give me this money, you can have hundreds of acres in this beautiful, fertile territory. And, and people, several families in France sold everything they had, cash and everything, gave him money. They were given a deed. They put what they had in the trunk and they went across the Atlantic, got to New York, took wagon trains across the mountains, which is a laborious labor, get to what is modern day Ohio, and they get out of the boat and they say, here are our deeds for our hundreds and hundreds of acres. And they look at him and say, there's no such thing. You've been swindled. So they're trapped. They can't get back. And so they use what little they have to get a few acres and they begin a life in America. And I thought, that, that, that's, that's what the devil does. The devil says, I'll give you this, 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 and this, or the royal system, I'll give you this, 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 and this, and they don't deliver. Christ does. That's the call of the gospel. That's our hope. That's who we serve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the, um, the, the, the teaching here. This is, it's, it's amazing teaching that no one has ever left lands or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children for your sake who will not receive 100 fold in this life. Lord, you are the one who gives. And, and even in the midst of persecutions and hardship, we know heaven awaits. So use this to break the spell of the world in our lives so that we can live diligently for you. So thank you for the day. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.